0: Here we go. Let's, let's get serious. Now that your belly is gurgling because now you're hungry and we talked about food, we're going to just suffer through for another whatever length of time. You were really spoiled last week that we were out of here before 11:30, and you hit the restaurants early because Let was preaching. It won't happen today. Uh, So let's do our Bible study. We are talking. If you're joining with us, the spirit world around us. We're talking about angels and demons. What we've been talking about the last few weeks that we were dealing with it. We're talking about the different attacks that Satan has against us, and he and his hordes, and how they attack. And it tells us to be weary and and uh, be careful of the fiery darts, the arrows of attack. Well, it's one thing. to be knowing that they're happening. It's another one to be saying, wait a minute, where are they coming from? What areas of temptation, attack will he make upon me? And so we've been looking at, and we uh, several weeks ago we talked about in Genesis 3 how he used doubt. He used desires, deceit, uh, denial in the life of Eve to get her to, to get into falling prey to his attacks. And he still uses these very same things. We talked in the last couple of weeks, we talked about the division amongst believers and how there's several texts that talk about him using division. I'm amazed as time goes by. I'm just amazed how this is such an effective tool amongst God's people that just cannot get along or just have an animosity or a, a judgment of others or an anger towards others. And it's, it's amazing. And it makes sense to me as time has gone by why he talks so many texts about being careful to, to not let anger take control. Otherwise you give room to the devil. Because it happens so frequently. There's another area of attack that he uh, that he used, and we mentioned it already, and that was the, the physical pains that he inflicts us with. Job chapter 1, Job's attacked, and he has all kinds of trials. It includes loss of income, it includes loss of family, it includes loss of personal health. Paul talks about being uh, buffeted by the messenger of Satan, how he suffered physically because of that. And so we know that that is one way that Satan can attack us is through pain, through agony, through those trials and difficulties. Another one was discouragement. The text that we often talk about with Satan—that one about um, be sober, be vigilant—for your adversary, the devil, walk about, seeking whom he may devour. It is sandwiched between two verses. One of the verses says, "Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you." And then afterwards, it's talking about the idea of suffering and having having difficulties and uh, and not giving in to them. And right in the middle is that idea that Satan. Had through discouragement, through that type of a temptation. Another one of his attacks that we mentioned, two more before we get into 1 Corinthians 7, was pride. He's, uh, he mentions in 1 Timothy about young men, novices, being careful, of sp- especially if they're headed in the ministry, lest they be lifted up to p- by pride and fall into temptation or condemnation of the devil. And the same thing, in the same text, he's talking about having a good report with the lost, such as handling finances right, such as having... Um, Peace with neighbors, such as treating other people properly, properly so that church leaders don't fall into the snare of the devil by having this lousy testimony. In 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7 is a text that, that some people don't want to talk about because it's getting very, uh, very pointed and it's, some would consider it a risque passage. But it's a very important passage, and God deals with it. First Corinthians 7, he talks about the area of sexual temptations. Look at the text with me. In First Corinthians 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to caress a woman. This word for touch in the King James does not mean you cannot shake hands. It has the idea of an intimate caressing. Very clearly, in the original language, the verb, that is, used there. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power over her own body. This text is dealing with intimacies. It's not just talking about attitude, it's talking about your physical intimacies. The wife has not power over her own body, but the husband, and likewise the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. In other words, the idea that you are not in control of your own body to say what you want to do and what you don't want to do. It ha- there, there's influence and submission even to your spouse in this regard that he talks about. We'll, we'll expand, expand upon it in the next minutes. Defraud you not one the other, except it be with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer. Come together sexually, again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. There at the last verse, he's talking about how Satan uses sexual desires as a way of tempting people. We understand that. We, we know that. We see that in the world, that Satan uses worldliness. He uses sexual um, promiscuity, and he promotes it. We understand that it is getting worse, and it is getting worse. It is a far more uh, huge problem for believers than in generations past probably the most contributing factor to people having issues with sexual temptations is the internet. The internet. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a whole new broad field of, of counseling that dealing with people who are just overwhelmed and overcome and the influence and the thought pattern on, on younger people about how you know, they're, they're inundated by it electronically in every area and it's amazing how it's creating difficulties in homes, this whole area. It's, it just, it, it's amazing, yeah, is all I can say without, without saying too much about the counseling factor. In 1 Corinthians 7, here's what I learned. In 1 Corinthians 7, the passage is talking about marital intimacies. In this text, and according to this text, it is saying that sexual intimacies are good. Okay, the sexual activity, the sexual relationship, the, uh, the close intimacies between a husband and wife are very appropriate. We don't live in a Victorian age that says that, that having sexual relationships is evil and it's just giving in to um, you know, perverse thinking. That's not what the scripture says at all. The scripture says that there are sexual relationships for three basic reasons. One is procreation. Okay, one is for the pleasure of the couple, and the other one, I'm having a brain-dead moment for a second here, um, is prevention of sin, okay, is is helping to prevent and to help your spouse not to be tempted into sin, and so there is pleasure in this, and there is the opportunity and encouragement that couples have that sexual relationship regularly, but it is for married couples only. It very clearly, he says in this text, that for marriage relationships, have your own husband, your own wife. This idea that the world has propagated, even in the Christian community, that if you, if you are in love, it's okay. That is not true biblically. Biblically, sexual relationships are for when the couple says, I do. It is a post-marital relationship. It is not a premarital. And I understand, I heard it, you hear it too, that people say, well, you don't buy shoes without trying them on first of all. Okay, and that that adage that, okay, premarital sex is okay. Well, I don't think you go and try out toothbrushes before you do the toothbrushes. Things that are more intimate, that are more personal. I hope that people don't go in the stores and try on the underclothes before they buy them. Okay, and then they turn around and sell them, and, and uh, now we're talking more private and intimate areas of our life. And so there, that idea of saying, okay, we've got to try this beforehand, and it's okay, and as long as we love each other. That's not what God's Word says. God's Word says very clearly, to avoid fornication, have your own wife, and your and every, in verse 2, and every woman have her own husband. In other words, according to that verse... Anything outside the husband and wife relationship is called what? Sin. It's fornication. You say, well, I, I, I don't think that. Well, then you're in total disagreement with God. God's word is very clear in this area. Okay? And so you have this idea in this text, which is really important. The goal in the physical relationship is supposed to be other-minded, is supposed to benefit my spouse, benefit your partner. It is not about you being able to have your own desires filled first and foremost. That is not, that is not a good sexual relationship. The sexual relationship that's promoted in Scripture is you're seeking to satisfy and meet your, sow, your spouse's desires and fulfillment that's other minded not selfish which is very very important in teaching in teaching young people is in young couples and and other couples who don't understand this that there is There is this format that it's not supposed to be just me being fulfilled. It's supposed to be making sure my partner is fulfilled. Intimacy should not be used to manipulate. You cannot defraud. You cannot hold back and say, unless you allow me to buy so much stuff, unless you allow me to to purchase this for my own benefit, we're not going to have physical relationships. That's defrauding your partner. That's manipulating your partner. That's, um, that's you know, That type of, of conduct is condemned in this passage. That he says you don't defraud, you don't hold back, you don't keep back. Uh, unless it's the only time you keep back is if there's mutual consent. So you cannot manipulate, you cannot um, hold ransom, your partner. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to have relationships with you unless you do such and such and such and such. That's sinfully wrong. The other thought is that there's supposed to be regular intimacies that limits the temptations that people suffer. And so the text is clear about this, that there is a time to take a, to take a, a part for prayer and fasting but then you give up that prayer and fasting. And by the way, that, that, that's an amazing thought here. When you look at verse 5, that one of the most intimate areas that you can have as husband and wife is praying together. It's on par with having sexual relationships. The intimacies, the fulfillment. That, that's, that sexual fulfillment is supposed to be put aside when there is that spiritual praying and fasting together. And so he puts them on that same level. Satan is behind sexual temptations. All those principles are so true. And they're such a major part of our society. We are, we are foolish. We parents are absolutely foolish. If we say that this isn't a problem for our teenagers, you have your head in the sand, and you're, you're, you're leaving your children out for real temptations, especially with an uncontrolled, un, unsupervised access to the Internet you've got to be careful, parents. The number of young people that we are dealing with over the last few years that are saying that they are a number of young couples that are saying it's a problem with pornography is amazing. It's tremendous. And a lot of it falls back on parents being being, um, responsible in understanding that there is temptation and they need to put up a net of protection around their kids. Because if all of a sudden somebody gets into this realm of thinking and focusing and fantasizing, it is really, really, really hard to reverse that. So it's it's just incumbent upon us, so incumbent upon parents to have the safeguards. Number one safeguard is make sure in your own life you're not giving in to these types of temptations and that you're conducting your own life in a proper way. In fact, what do we do about it? What do we do about this temptation? You need to fill your minds with pure thoughts. You and I need to fill our minds with pure thoughts. Let me let me make this comment: Avoid dwelling on fantasies or visuals involving other people than your spouse. This idea that um, that we as a married couple we can engage in pornography is okay for us. I I don't understand that from scriptures. From scriptures, that if you're, if you're looking with fantasy upon another person, according to the words of Jesus Christ, you have committed lust in your heart. So, I, this idea of saying, okay, as a married couple, we can engage in all kinds of, of evil literature, uh, ungodly type of, of visual produc- productions, it is going to warp your own thinking. It is going to be a dangerous area that you're entering into. Enjoy and appreciate your spouse. Meet their needs physically. Never use sex to manipulate or punish the other person. That would be an inappropriate. Wrong. Flee the youthful lusts, including such things as fleeing would include this. Avoid the lewd conversations. Avoid the lewd remarks, the inappropriate. Avoid the joking about those areas that would that would imply and, and, and tear down the sanctity of the of the marriage bed, avoid sharing stories and ex, and the experiences. Okay, I understand where where you're talking, and somebody is saying we're struggling. Can you help us out? I understand that part, but avoid the avoid the conversations that would that would foster such thought. Avoid these the uh, situations that foster lewd conduct um situations Uh, this is us maybe we were just stupid um we didn't let our kids when they were dating they were not going to be in spots where they were going to be vulnerable there was going to be you know they weren't going to be home when we're gone and home alone with their with their uh person they're dating with their fiance or or uh you know, in that time period, he was like, okay, just keeping an accountability factor, you're just, you're not going, we're not going to let you put yourself in that type of a spot. Now, I understand, we're, we're old, we're weird, um, but bottom line is, I didn't trust my kids. I don't trust myself, because this is an area where we're all vulnerable, and this is an area where Satan is an expert, and it's something that we need to be cautious about. And so putting up the protection. I'd avoid people, there are some people that they just can't have conversations without talking about the sexual. They can't, they can't talk normal, talk about somebody without taking it into the area of sex, sexual innuendos. You know, avoid that type of person. I'd avoid entertainments as much as possible. This one's tough, right? How much entertainment is sexually uh, designed to be stimulating? Most of it. A lot of it. Okay? A lot of it. And, I mean, I'm, 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 how are most of the ladies dressed in video games? Are they dressed? Are they dressed? Okay. We didn't, we didn't again, we, we're old. We didn't let our boys have those type of video games as much as we possibly could control that. Um, You know, they didn't have we we had limited computers, but the computer had to be in an open room. You could not have a computer in your room, okay, at all, um, just because of that protection of you know with that area. But it was it was amazing how many video games that they swapped with other kids at church. That it was like you're not playing that anymore. That goes back. You can't no get rid of that. Just the the uh, you know the lewdness. Okay, movies. Am I, am I stretching the truth when I say that a lot of movies make it look like, oh, if you like somebody, you end up in bed with them? Is that a lot in movies? By the way, if a young person is seeing that, seeing that, seeing that, seeing that, what do they think is the norm? Then it's okay. okay. And so that philosophy, that area, it's just it's so critical. And you and I need to be, we need to be aware of the fact that this isn't, this isn't a, a game. This is a vicious attack by the enemy who would destroy. And can he destroy homes over perversions? Can he destroy marriages over perverseness? Over affairs? Oh, man. We need to be careful. And you and I need to be careful because if any man thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. Got very quiet on that one, so let's pick one that's a lot of, that's a little bit different. Let's go to 1 John. 1 John. In 1 John, he's talking in this text, chapter 2. You're familiar with this text. 1 John chapter 2. This is a fiery dart from the wicked one. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he says very simple, and, and you know this one, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father... Is not in him, okay? For all that is in the world, we're in First John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the... Are you there? Okay, it's not of who? It's not of the Father, but it is of the who? The world, okay. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abides forever. Now, hang on to First John. He is describing in this text... Avoiding worldliness. What is worldliness? We use that term. We don't want to be worldly. What does that mean to be worldly? Does it mean to be interested in anything in the world? I mean, Do you have any interests of things that are not going to last for eternity? Yes. Okay. Are those evil? Are you concerned about your car? Okay. Do you take care of your car? Do you buy a decent car? Okay. Do you have a nice house? Do you ever fix up your house? Do you ever buy furniture? Do you replace your clothes and get a variety of clothes, or do you wear the same style of clothes, black and white? Okay, And you don't do black and white. Why do you pick the clothes you, you pick? They're fashionable. They look nice on you. Okay. Is that being worldly? If it is, then we need, to, we need to define this, folk. What does it mean to be worldly? Is it, world, is it worldly to take a vacation? The world takes vacations. They promote vacations. Is it worldly to do a vacation? Yes, no? Is it worldly to have a bank account? Then what is worldliness? When it dominates? Okay. Do you ever feel like your house and property dominate you? Sometimes, okay, yes? Do you ever feel, yesterday I felt like mowing lawn was dominating, okay? Just because it was so long and helping out some people and mowing their lawns, it was just like, whoa, it got to be dominating, okay? Is that wrong to do that? No. What's worldliness? If somebody asks you, if your kids ask you, what is worldliness? Pastors talk about don't be worldly. What's that mean? Okay, that's a good definition. Somebody here, uh, sorry. Okay, a set of you said the same thing. Set of values that's excluding God. Yours was. Okay, okay, okay. I, I, th- those are really good, valid definitions, as valid as the one I put up. It includes operating by or being fixated upon pride, uh, the pride of life, the things he mentions here. Okay, the pride of life, uh, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it is that idea of these things becoming dominating, becoming your value system. It is all of a sudden, these are the most important things. Um, again, your house is important, yes, no, yes, okay, because because you have stewardship before God, yes god 's helped you to pre, and so you want to do it, but can your house become your God? Yes, okay, can your car become your God? okay, can anything become your God, yeah, 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 and so, okay, worldliness is basically letting the things of this world. Replace the Lord in your in your value system, in your priority system, and there are moments. Let's be real; there are moments that all of a sudden. And I was joking with you, Warren. I said, "Did your property ever come to a point that seems dominate Is that an appropriate time that sometimes you've got to really focus on it? Yes. Okay, um, y'all. You know, the, there's nothing evil with that, but it's if this is your lifestyle. In fact, here's the danger. Chapter five, verse nineteen, which adds to this. Go to chapter five, verse nineteen. Watch what he says. Verse 18, we know that whosoever is born of God continues not to sin constantly, but he that is gotten begotten keeps himself, and that the wicked one toucheth him not. The idea is that perpetual giving in to certain sins. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in, okay, does anybody have a different translation, the whole world lies in wickedness? in the power of the evil one in the original language it's implied that it's not wickedness in general but it's the wicked one is the seems to be a stronger and more clear translation that uh, that what it is is the world is under the domination focus of the wicked one the wicked one is who Okay, it's Satan. Okay, and so what we have is the implication here that Satan really wants us to distract from our value system and be focused on, and by the way, does he he warn us, does Jesus warn us that, that sometimes the seed falls where all of a sudden the weeds come up, the cares of the world, and pulls away the word of God? okay so we understand that that's the possibility so what we need to do is say okay what do I do I need to do what is right okay I need to spend time in prayer and if I know that I'm being tempted in an area this is in general I'm supposed to get others to pray for me in fact Jesus says to Satan that Satan wants to sift you and I'm going to pray for you that even after you fall you not be destroyed that you'll be able to get back up and strengthen other believers and so we need to do what's right now here's some thoughts According to Colossians 1, if I want to stay away from worldliness, I need to set my affections. That's where I think the two of you said the values, your priorities. Set your affections, affections on things above. I like my house. You like your properties. You like your cars, whatever it is. But are we willing to give them, to give them up at a drop of the hat for the things of the Lord? If need be, yes. Yes. I, I like my house, but I think I've got a better one in the future okay, with the Lord. And that's more of a priority. Okay, we should be involved with worship as much as we can. Corporate as well as private worship. That's a a possibility. We should memorize scriptures to resist the evil one. We'll get into more of that when we get into the believer's armor. Uh, We should be thinking every day, I want to act more like Christ. I don't need to be proud. I don't need to be fulfilling every fancy and every whim of my desire. We should work at contentment. One of the one of the worldly temptations is to try to keep up with the, the the neighbors. Okay, if they see it, I've got to have it. Okay, and you know, and, and you know that whole idea is I got to get ahead. And, and the and the, the, the challenge for us in this modern day is if we see something and we want it, we can get it. We can get it. It's very easy to get stuff, isn't it? How how do you get it? Yeah, any of hey any of you any of you get those credit card things saying you've got credit up to twenty thousand dollars, okay? That they'll extend to you, and you'll keep you at low interest, only seventeen point nine percent interest rate, okay? And so it's easy to get stuff. It's hard to be content. Be other minded. Other people-minded in activities and speech become charitable with our treasures. One of, the, one of the real ways to defeat the temptation of greed and materialism is be charitable. Be charitable. Don't, don't um, hoard things. Okay. Change your thinking from your comfort and fun and prestige to helping others to serving the Lord, to promoting other people. It's a change of your value system. It's other people's focus, which is uh, more like Christ. Let's give you another area of attack, okay? This is now the area that we see in Scripture a whole lot, okay? And we'll get into what we can today in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation 20, he brings up this area of satanic attack. In Revelation 20, verse 3, this is a future prediction of what's going to happen during the, during the tribulation period, okay? And his point is, at that time in Revelation 20, it's towards the end of the tribulation period, but he makes the comment that Satan has now met his match. The Lord Jesus Christ has come down in chapter 19. He's come on the white horse. He's descending from heaven. And what he's going to do is he's going to chain Satan for how many years? A thousand years in the bottomless pit. Okay, and his comment is made in chapter 20, verse 3, is he's going to stop Satan that he would deceive the nations no more. What does that tell you? He's been doing all along. He's been deceiving the nations, okay? He's been, uh, and when we talk about deceiving the nations, we're talking about his influence is what? How, How broad. Okay, it's worldwide. It's worldwide. So what we have is his teachings. It tells us that Satan, in this time period, in the tribulation time period, that all all along he has continuously been deceiving peoples and peoples around the whole world. Now, how has he deceived people in a religious sense around the world? There are several things clearly mentioned in Scripture that Satan's attacks, his temptations, and they're still very, very, very prominent. And by the way, we're going to see it in. a moment. It is in the book of Colossians that we in the local church are still, um, we're vulnerable to some of these satanic attacks of idolatry. If you turn over uh, Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to catch up with you in just a minute in Colossians chapter 2, but we'll see that Satan is in the church, attacking the church, and he's doing it via idolatry. Okay, so we have this, we have counterfeit religions some of the, the way he attacks. Now, we understand idolatry. We understand that it was forbidden all the way back in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven an image or likeness of anything in heaven above, and that is with the idea of to worshiping them. He goes on, you shall not bow down yourself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God. And so, we understand this, that back in those ancient days, this was the type of thing they got involved with. That they would, that they would worship the Zeus the, they would worship the, the different characters, the Baals, the Molechs, that we understand the, the Egyptian gods, the you know, Isis we, and Osiris and even, even the pharaohs. We understand that, that that idea could be and would have been what he's talking about, no other gods. Um, the big god that, that Ahab and Jezebel promoted, remember who he is? Baal, okay, and they brought in these false gods and worshipped the false gods, and they they became fertility cults. They became, um, you know, child child sacrifices. And God said, none of that, none of that, none of that. You worship me. You worship me, and you very clearly, okay, no idolatry in that in that regard. But according to Colossians two, let's move into more of uh, the modern era from the New Testament on. He warns about idolatry in the church. He says in verse eight, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. And then he goes on and he talks about, um, oh, there's more here Uh, down in verse 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of what? of angels, okay, intruding into those things which he hath not seen vainly puffed up by a fleshy mind. The word that he's using here in the original is stop letting this happen to you. And it should be 2, 8, and 18. You may want to put it in your notes. The, um, the idea is that these believers were getting involved with the possibility of being tempted to worship angels and spirits. Now how, how is that possible? How is it that in the church, all of a sudden other spirits become predominant and get the attention. But Let's back up for a second. When people saw angels, good people in scriptures, did they fall down and have a tendency to worship them? They did. The apostle John, remember in the book of Revelation, and the angel says, do not worship me. Okay? Um, so, the, those powerful beings, could Christians be caught up with experiences and visual phenomena and start worshiping the visual phenomena? Does that ever happen today? Do people ever see visions and see dreams? Okay, okay. Remember in the New Testament era, that was more predominant because there was that time period in the New Testament before the scriptures were fulfilled. Did people get the visions, the dreams, and the tongues? Yes, and it was very valid. Could they start worshiping those experiences and magnifying them? So he's warning them about it, and he's, remember now, this is written to believers And he warns them, don't get involved with worshiping the angels, okay? And saying, don't get involved with phenomena. Don't get involved with experiential things. Be careful. We're worshiping God that we don't get caught up with other things. But then he goes on and he mentions Colossians chapter 3, worship again and idolatry. Chapter 3, verse 5 mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth fornication uncleanness inordinate affection okay or evil concupiscence and covetousness and then what's your last phrase of the verse how is it that materialism becomes idolatry how is it wanting things becomes your idol Okay, it becomes more important than God. Have you seen people that getting things is their whole value system? Have you ever seen that? That they will trounce and tromp over anybody and everybody just to get the almighty dollar? Yes, no? Have you seen that in corporate greed? Okay, have we seen that in individuals? That money is everything. In fact, Jesus uses it as an example about the rich man who has huge silos, and what does he tear down and build? Bigger ones, okay? And then what happens to him by the time he gets it all done? He dies, okay? And takes how much of it with him? Yeah. And so we have this idea. Now, this is written to believers. And by the way, in the the text... There is conversation amongst many Bible scholars when he says, which is idolatry? The which is the which plural, or is it singular? In other words, is he referring to just covetousness as idolatry, or could he be referring to fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetous, all of it as a form of idolatry? And the other conversation that goes amongst the scholars is covetousness focusing on money, or what's the other possibility based on all the other words in the passage? What? No. Look at the other, the other mentioned. All the other words in the passage are referring to sexual relationships, desiring somebody. Is there any command in Scripture that warned against coveting your neighbor's wife? Okay. And so some debate whether this in conversation is, is this saying that even the physical satisfaction could become idol, an idol in somebody's heart? That's a possibility. Could materialism, physical things being an idol. That's a possibility. All of it is possible in this text. The clarity is going to be made much more sure when we enter into the Lord's presence. But he ends up calling uh, covetous a form of idolatry, wanting more, more things, more materialism, or more of the sexual gratification that looking outside the marriage bed. That's the possibility. Christians can become involved in idolatry. That's the point that he's warning us against and saying we've got to be careful of idolatry. Again, idolatry is stemming from the heart of Satan and from what he's doing. Go to 1 Corinthians. Here is another form of idolatry that afflicted the early church and it's a struggle. This text is a battle. This text is a little bit confusing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, do you remember chapters 8 and 9 are dealing with um, the area of meats for the belly, belly for the meats, the whole thing of whether or not we should eat meat. That was the whole conversation chapter 8 and 9. Do you remember it? Okay, why were some Christians saying we should never eat meat? Because the meat was purchased at the marketplace that was owned by the pagan temple. That meat that was being sold in that marketplace had been offered to pagan gods. Therefore, there were some Christians saying that meat has been tainted because it was offered to Athena. And so, if we eat the meat, and if we buy it from the marketplace, which is the only marketplace in town, but if we buy meat from them, we're supporting the temple of Athena in a roundabout way. Okay, and so some said, we ought not to eat the meat at all, just become vegetarians. And he writes and says, well, Paul makes it very clear, he eats the meat, except for when does he give up the meat? when there's somebody with him that it would cause him to stumble. And so he makes that whole argument, that meat, and he goes on, he makes the argument, the meat was not somehow transformed because it was offered to Athena. Athena was a nothing and the meat wasn't contaminated and it's, it's separate, it's associated but separate to a degree. So he says, I would buy the meat except for if it's going to stumble a brother. That's the whole text of chapters 8 and 9 that you have to be careful of a brother's weaknesses. And you ought not to, you ought not to stumble a brother. If you stumble a brother, you sin against... Do you remember this is an important statement. Who do you sin against if you stumble a brother? You, stumble, you, you sin against the brother, but you also sin against Christ. Okay, and so he's very... That whole idea. Okay, if somebody has a weakness, and you and I, have ta- we've talked about this. If somebody has a weakness for alcohol, and they get born again, the place that we... The thing we don't want to take them to, uh, because the, if they're still struggling with it, is don't take them to, to a, a restaurant with a bar. Okay? Don't stumble them. Somebody has a real problem that on a weakness, they cannot control TV. Okay? When they come to your house, do what? Turn the TV off. Don't go there. Don't do that. Um, You know, somebody, their sports, their sports was their idol. And it dominated their life. And it distracted from worship. And they say, I'm not going to play sports for a period of time until they get it under control. So if you invite them over to your house, one of the things you don't want to do is... Yeah, let's go, let's go out and play some game of sport that might stumble them. So you've got to be careful. And that's, that's his point of the text. Then in chapter 10, though, he kind of reverses his tone and makes it clear that he isn't saying, therefore, that temple is, is nothing. He, and, he, and he tries to clarify his argument lest some say, oh, well, then if I can eat meat, then really I can do anything associated with that temple because Athena is not a real God. And he writes back, and he's, this is his whole discussion in chapter 10, uh, where he goes the cup of blessing, verse, verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless is not the communion of the blood of Christ. The cup which we break is it not the communion of the body of Christ. And you understand where he's going. We are being many, are one bread, one body. We are all partakers. Okay, we have to be sensitive to one another. Behold, Israel after the flesh, were they not partakers, they uh, are not they which eat the sacrificers partaker of the altar? What say I then? That the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to whom? To devils, and not to, and I would not that you should have fellowship with The devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of the devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify. And so he's going, and then he goes on, Seek not your own, but every man another. Okay, his point in this text is this, okay, written to believers. He warns that we need to stay away from idolatry. Okay, just because he's saying you can eat the meat in the marketplace, he's not saying, therefore, you can go into the temple and participate in the temple. He's not saying that. He says, you know, there's liberty, but liberty doesn't give me license to do anything and everything that has a connotation of evil. And there needs to be this balance. We are never to engage in pagan worship in practices. Because we say, well, we know that they're not teaching the truth, but we'll just go in there and we'll worship with them and we'll participate with them because maybe we'll get an opportunity to share the gospel. And he's like, no, 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 you can't do that. We are not to compromise Christ. There's a movement that is is being promoted in America to reach the Muslims. The movement is, I'm, I'm not going to try the name because I'm going to say it wrong, but the movement is for Christians to go to Muslim centers and worship with the Muslims and pray with them, do their feast days, because you hope and pray that by showing that you are interested in them, you'll be able to share the gospel with them one day, okay? And it's a very prominent movement in some evangelical circles in America, that this is how we're going to win the Muslims, by acting like we are Muslims. I think that's what this text is talking about, that type of thing. That we can't get involved with becoming an idol worshiper or a fall, get involved with a false religion just so that maybe we have an inroad to share Christ. He so says, you can't do that. You can't go that far. We don't compromise Christ. We don't do. And remember, this was the real issue for the early church. The early church started facing what major problem? There was 10 of these that came against the church in the early years from the emperors. Persecution. And they were told that if you just bow down and worship our God, you can go and worship your own God your own way. And what was the call to the believers? You can't do that. You can't, you can't compromise your faith and he's telling them that you have to be distinct you have to be separate from that type of evil and so he's telling believers warning them in this text that you have to be careful of them now right along with that is another form and this gets even more dangerous go to revelation 2 right along with that idea of idolatry and subtly getting christians to do wrong go to chapter 2 of revelation verse 10 and watch where he says Satan has been engaged in. Revelation chapter 2. And this gets, gets really close to home now in saying, oh, we got to be careful. He's writing to the church of Smyrna. I know your works in tribulation and your poverty. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, but they are not. They are of the synagogue of who? Wait a minute. Wait a minute is the Jewish system, was it ordained of God for a period of time? For a certain period of time. Was the synagogue something evil? Did Jesus go to the synagogues? Yes. So is he saying that every synagogue is Satan Satan bound? No. But what he is saying is that in Smyrna... What was supposed to have been something to help propagate the truth, by the way, the Jews were to be a light to the world. What they were to teach, that, that Romans 10 passage that we love, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, that's a quote from the Old Testament that the Jews were supposed to take to the world. The synagogues were designed by God and introduced in, in, providentially to be a gospel witness, But this one in Smyrna has been corrupted and it has deteriorated. So he says this this synagogue is no longer even near truth. It is now corrupting the truth. Is it possible that God-approved institutions could be dominated in putting out false teachings? Could churches become the residence of Satan? By putting out false teachings, false doctrines. Yes, no. Yes. Are there some churches that would claim to be Christian, but they have perverted the gospel? Yes. So who's behind that? What do we have to be careful of? And he makes the comment here that you and I need to be so cautious. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. He says, "Well, I'm gonna. I thought I had it written. I don't." He says in First Timothy four, and we'll wrap up with this. He makes this comment in First Timothy four. If you've not marked it, you should. He says, "The Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter days some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils." Now, watch what he specifies. They are speaking lies in hypocrisy having their conscience seared with a hot iron, they forbid to marry, they command to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. These are forms of Christian churches, Christian institutions, that he says in the latter days, our days, they will increase in number. They will be infiltrated by satanic doctrines that sound good, That may tickle the ear, but they're wrong. In fact, they're going to catch on. He says they will give heed the ideas. It's going to grow. It's going to become popular. The teaching is going to spread in the latter days. And the philosophies that are taught include a couple things. The philosophy of um, self-sacrifice. The philosophy of denying yourself. Monasticism. Okay, if you, if you sleep on a bed of nails, it'll get you closer to God. If you don't have any kind of, you know, if you're celibate for your whole life, that makes you more spiritual. Okay, and so celibacy gets promoted that those who are celibate are more godly than others. That's what he's warning against. He's warning in this text that that's going to become popular. By the way, did that become a popular teaching in Christian, in, in Christians, uh, Christian history? yes. Yes. And then he says, there's going to come to a place, and that's that whole idea of asceticism, monasticism, suffering. In fact, what season is this promoted in, our, in Christendom today? Easter. What, what do we call that season pre-Easter pre that people are supposed to sacrifice for God, sacrifice for God? Lent. Okay? that's whole, That whole ascetic idea that we need to suffer because Jesus suffered. Okay, and we need to, that'll make us more pleasing to God if we suffer, 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 suffer. The asceticism is, is a predominant teaching. And then that idea of don't eat certain foods or, or in our day, it's even more popular, the idea that animals are on par with people. Okay, this doctrine of devils that every, by the way, if animals are on par with people, what, what, what philosophy does that promote? Evolution. Okay, that there isn't a hierarchy, that there isn't a creator, that we all evolve from the same thing. And so this whole idea, he's saying, this is doctrine of the devils. Has it permeated Christianity? Has evolutionary thought cre- crept into our Christian society? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Has this idea that we don't even think about God? These are dangerous things. And he's warning us: you got to be ever so careful. Now, right along with that, are dangerous teachers. Look and see if I put your favorite one up there. Okay? Okay. Some of these guys are very popular on TV. Their doctrines are not correct. Okay? They are not correct. You say, "Yeah, but I like them." They are not teaching biblical doctrine. We'll talk about them next week. Okay? Let's stop there.